Welcome to The Village Lantern, a podcast for families living with hidden challenges, such as autism and other neurodiverse conditions, and for anyone else wanting to understand, love, and support. Our mission is to build understanding, empathy, and love for families living with one or more children who have hidden conditions that make life harder in one way or another. We call this Extra Zing. Them created us. You know, I said I showed them. I had three bagels. Sometimes we're like this, like a whole bagel, and I cr- cracked another bagel in half. And I said, sometimes we're broken like this, and sometimes we're just completely shattered. Now, God created us inside with mechanisms to go from the shattered back to the whole. Episode nine: Insight with the Lot. Personal experience. Parenting, Teaching and Advocacy, Part 2 with Tal Spinrad. We could not get enough of Tal, so we split his amazing conversation into two. You'll love this one just as much. As we delve into the more professional side of Tal's amazing career. Hey, Village Lantern, potties. I just made that up. I don't know if that's what we're going to call you. We will for now. This is our last episode for season one. And again, unfortunately, Jordan's still away, but he's he'll be back, he assures me, in the next week or so. So I'm really glad to have him back in town, but also pleased for how well things are going in Sydney. Uh, this is our last episode. It's the second part to our great interview with Charles Spinrad. You'll remember that Tal's a career Jewish educator and advocate for change and he's just such a great uh, conversationalist. He's got so many interesting insights to share with us and we hope you really enjoy this second part to the interview. And we look forward to bringing you season two. We have already started planning. It won't be too long. So we hope you enjoy the summer or winter, depending on where you are in the world. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again or hearing at least. Um, and talking with you again really soon. Love you all so much. Hope you all enjoy the end of this horrendous 2020. Bye. Part of my job is my official title is I work for, you know, the Unified Jewish Education Board, UJEP, and I'm the project manager for Kulanu. Kulanu means all of us in Hebrew. And part of my job is doing um, professional development in, uh, in Jewish day schools and in other communities as well, synagogues. We're even um, part of our initiative right now is I'm scheduled. I've been on hold schedule because I was supposed to do this, but the pandemic showed up. And um, my job has me going and doing professional development with the leaderships in the Muslim community and within the Christian community, you know, the other junior traditions and stuff like that. So, uh, so that's a huge thing. But one of the things I did is that my my daughter Gabby, who is on the spectrum, mainstreams uh, mainstreams at Beth Rifka, and uh, she her twin brother Ruby, who goes to Bayside Special Developmental School. Thank God they they've kept the special developmental school. A lot of the specialist schools are uh, changing their names to specialist schools. And I'm much more comfortable saying Bayside SDS than the Bayside SS school. There's just some 
you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, you just, it's hard there. But nevertheless, Ruby is nonverbal, and Ruby self-regulates in a lot of ways that might from the outside appear to be odd. But one of the things that I've made a habit of doing, despite when we actually were going to school, is for the last five years, is I would get to school to pick up Gabby with Ruby, and I would, with with mindfulness, show up there a little early so that Ruby can play, and Ruby can be visible, and Ruby can go through his moods and and be there, and the other kids see him, all right? And after four and five years, uh, at first they were very, what? you know, what the hell is that? And they've been, you know, why, you know, why? And they were very put off, but now he's somewhat like part of the community other than, you know, being the only boy in like a whole, you know, girl school type of thing. It's very much like an Elvis movie or something like that. But he, um, so he's there and Gabby finally came to me and said, you know, can, can you come and talk to my classmates about why Ruby is how he is? Because they've been asking questions, curious questions, good questions. And and what I did is I went to, this was when Gabby was in year four last year, and I did a session that turned into not one session, but two one-hour sessions with all three year four classes, so 60 year four girls, and I just focused on self-regulation. And... It was a revelation because what I was what I was saying is that you know because it's a religious school. I said you know God Hashem created us. You know I said I showed them we had three bagels. Sometimes we're like this, like a whole bagel, and I cr- cracked another bagel in half. And I said sometimes we're broken like this, and sometimes we're just completely shattered. Now God created us inside with mechanisms to go from the shattered back to the whole. And that's called self-regulation. All right. And some of the ways that we self-regulate, how do you, how do you go from, and the girls came, they were, um, you know, they say, well, you know, I have a, I have a teddy bear at home or I have a blanket at home or I have, you know, or I cry or I take a bath or I take a shot of tequila. No, that was me. That wasn't the girl. They, you know, they, they all had these wonderful things and they all were very hesitant in the beginning because they had all been told that that was inappropriate behavior. And not, yes, there were some adults that may have been borderline abusive with that and said, don't do that, don't do that. But even well-meaning adults, that if they see a child crying, their initial response is, how do I get that kid to stop crying, right? Even if it's, I want that kid to be happy again, right? Whereas that should not be the emphasis. The emphasis should be to allow that kid to process to the fullest extent with that crying, because that crying is the thing that was given to them the way they were created to work through their stuff, right? Not to cut it short. The end game isn't to not cry. The end game is to, if you're upset or broken, cry, get through it, have someone be there with you that's not trying to get you to stop crying, but it's going to allow you to do that, will listen to you, not tell you how to be better, but just listen. It's the old bumper stick. Meltdowns are inevitable. Get good at them. 
right? And the minute that these kids, because of course, I'm talking to the kids, but who I'm really talking to are the professionals, the teachers in the room. The kids intuitively know what they need to do to fix themselves, to heal themselves. But through years and years of indoctrination, the neurotypical kids are learning how to ignore their gut and and toe the line in the programming, which is what makes therapists later on in 20, 30 years richer. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's so amazing that you're out there talking to the teachers because that's where we've obviously found a lot of struggle. Um, even in a special school, um, we sometimes find that um, there's just not an understanding of why, what is behind certain behaviours. But the other day I had a meltdown. I just, a few things happened in the day and I'd been sort of holding on for a long time. I just started crying and crying. My kids were home. And I, initially I was with my 12-year-old who has ADHD and I started, I, was, I didn't want to, I wanted him to see me crying. I wanted him to, and, and I was talking to him as I was crying saying, you know, this is what's really making me so sad. And the moment that just happened kicked me off, but actually I feel sad a lot of the time about some of these things because when you're a parent and your children are struggling, it hurts your heart and you just want to do everything, but not everyone around you um, understands that or has the same sort of determination or need to try and make things better. And he was a bit sort of funny and awkward, but he was also really beautiful because he sat with me and he, and he just, he'd sat with me and I said that, you know, I'm crying because it's a, it's an outlet and it, I'm going to feel better soon and I'm fine. And then he sort of tried to cheer me up, but more beautifully the next day or later that afternoon, he made these extra efforts to try and help my other children who were melting down at different points. And because he knew that I needed that help. And I thought, wow, for a 12 year old, that is so beautiful. And I'm so grateful that he can learn that lesson so quickly and work out that, I mean, hopefully he learned the lesson that crying is an important process of, of, you know, a meltdown or however you describe that buildup of tension and pain. But then my seven-year-old also came in and said, what, you know, what's wrong? Are you okay? Is everything okay? I said, yeah, I am okay. But sometimes we cry because we're sad. It doesn't mean we're not okay. I said, I'm a really strong mama. I'm a strong woman, but I'm, I'm just really sad right now. And even my daughter, all they all saw me. It was, you know, but I, I and I think you're right. Like parents, at least when I was growing up, you weren't supposed to cry in front of your kids. You weren't supposed to fight in front of your kids. You weren't supposed to worry about money or anything in front of your kids because somehow that wasn't going to be healthy for them. But I don't, I mean, one, I'm like, like hyper, hyper um, extroverted and I, I have to just sort of express everything. So that would be very hard for me to do. But secondly, I understand really deeply how important that is to see me going through that. And because I suffer anxiety, I'll say to my kids, I've just, I just need a minute. I've just got a really tight chest. I'm feeling really anxious. I'm not really sure why, but I just need a minute because that's why I'm irritable or that's why I'm screaming or, I mean, you know, it actually hurts and it's uncomfortable because they all experience it. I think it's really important that they see me experiencing it and still living a full, successful, functioning life along, you know, with it together. And so I think that what it's doing for my kids is one, letting them know that it's okay, two, showing them my version of how I let it out, but also building this beautiful compassion. Um, most 12-year-olds, I don't know, I don't have another 12-year-old, but I think that he is probably more compassionate and um, considerate than probably others who haven't lived with that, also living with difficult siblings for a long, long time and building that patience and tolerance. You know, I do think it's character building and I was so proud of him 
I think it's so interesting um, when we talk of inclusion and we talk of these things um, to to recognize the the beauty that that children and individuals who have special needs um, the things that they do to say self regulate um, what we can learn from that. Uh, I think that is what that's what you know a good mindset for inclusion is is our uh, this kid is rocking or, or vocalizing you know he or she you know needs to stop that if they want to you know be in a neurotypical society where the step is, is that's really interesting what can I learn from that and I think two stories for me um, one is is a family that I was quite close with um, and the the mother who wanted to really understand you know what her child who was nonverbal was doing she just decided to take a year to go into his world and if he rocked she would rock and if he hummed she would hum and she just basically mimicked his self-regulating tendencies to understand what's this doing and what she found was that it wasn't strange and it wasn't bizarre and it wasn't ostracizing she understood it and, and after doing it she understood that why a rocking motion can calm you, calm you down and why a soft hum can really help reduce an anxiety and, and she went into his world and at the end of it she didn't then bring him into hers but she was understanding enough of his that they then could communicate better and I think that's so beautiful and something that I've really learned as well is so many of the ways I you know process things now and understand the need to do things really comes from things that I've learned um, from the individuals that I've you know become close with and, and the families and and understanding that you know we are often in the neurotypical society like Tal said you know are programmed and conditioned very young to kind of push away those natural tendencies that are given to us and, you know, pick up on things that are told will make us be able to bring ourselves together. Um, and I think it's so amazing that a lot of the, the kids and the children that I support or, or that I'm close with, you know, because they don't have that link, uh, that communicative link in, in the neurotypical society, they don't take on that conditioning. Um, and then in some ways remain really pure and true to themselves. Um, there's so much to learn and from, from understanding that world and, and not forcing them to give up or give away those tendencies, but looking to understand what, what they are and, and why we've become so disconnected from them. And I think that that's such a, a beautiful step, um, you know, that Tal's really tying in, in terms of inclusion is, is such a, that's such a paradigmatic uh, example of, of what inclusion is, is recognizing that there's so much, so much to learn. And also maybe we aren't, the right and they're the wrong, but it's recognizing beautiful differences. I do want to ask you a question, Tal, um, because I feel like you sit in such an interesting space in your life as someone who uh, has special needs, who advocates for individuals with special needs, works in education, and is very interested, engaged, and connected with Jewish learning and Jewish teaching. How, how have those, you know, all those different things interplayed in your life and, and specifically with your Jewish learning, how has that connected to your understanding, you know, of disability for yourself and for others and your role uh, in education and, and inclusion? Yeah, uh, in, incredibly, uh, profoundly. All of the, the ways that society has, uh, a lot of the way, not all of the ways that society are, they, it just didn't happen in the vacuum that all communities, all cultures have archetypes that they build on. 
and a lot of them hold on. One of my more challenging uh, jobs uh, in my portfolio is culture change. And, you know, part of it comes from within the Jewish community and it's part of what I'm doing with the Muslim community and the Christian community because all communities have their aspects of this. That there is a whole lot of residual, you know, fallout from how some clergy explain uh, bad things happening to people or what they perceive as bad things or people being different or this and that. And unfortunately, what it has done is there is an amazing amount, a heartbreakingly amazing amount of people uh, in all traditions, but I'll just speak of the tradition I live in, the Jewish community, that have family members that are closeted because they either have a disability or they're on the spectrum. That there are so many people that still, uh, that they have people, there's people in leadership in religious organizations that, that tell people that if you have a kid with a disability or if you've gotten ill or if you've done this or they've been, you know, this or that, it's because something in your family, someone in your family has done something wrong. And this is some sort of uh, divine retribution, which is, uh, how can I put this, a bovine feces. Uh, you know, and the, the odd part about it, there are two things I want to really, really be clear about. One, this is not uh, limited to what people would perceive as orthodox as opposed to progressive. In fact, there's a lot of this in the very secular community. So when people say it's, this is a thing of religion, it's not a thing of religion, okay? And it's not a thing of observance. It's a thing that if people, if people want to, to go back and be dogmatic about why people are this or why people are that, and they want some, someone to blame, they'll do that whether they have religion or not, all right? And two... That when you take a look in what, what I try to do, and I try to work with people in, in, in Jewish communities, and again, in the Muslim and, and Christian community, is what is at least part of what we've, I've started doing with Jordan on, on a certain level and, and his, uh, his gang, is to, to try to, to take a look at primary text. Take a look at the primary sources, because the original sources you like the, the the Bible, the Tanakh, the Quran. There's a lot of stuff in there that is very inclusion friendly. It's not sugar coated, but it's it you you know unless you're going to cherry pick text, the as a total as a whole is very inclusive. And what you try to do is you try to decipher you know. The text between what someone, some rabbi who had an agenda to say, you know what, if you act like this, you're going to become, you're going to become intellectually delayed. If you do this, you're well, pregnant, this is going to happen. And this type of thing over centuries has become so ingrained and so much institutionalized that, that people just, there is, it's one of the reasons why even if people don't actively think about it, they pass it on. I will give you a, a, a example in the Jewish community 
that is very relevant today. And Jordan may or may not know know this one. During the, the time between Pesach, between Passover and Shavuot, is 49 days. Between That's between us leaving Mitzrayim, us leaving Egypt as slaves, becoming free, and getting to Mount Sinai. There's, during that time, there's something called the counting of the Omer, which is actually incredibly inclusive. What, the, what an Omer is, is a unit of measure that is very specifically not specific. So it's a unit of measure that means you, will, you get and you take exactly what you need. If you need a lot, you get a lot. If you need little, you do. So in a sense, it is the perfect inclusion, educational needs type of unit of measure. What do I give my kids in terms of attention? I give them an Omer. Right, exactly what they need, not what I need, what they need, you know. So that's we're doing the counting of the Omer. There is a Jewish teaching from rabbis, not from texts, but from rabbis that say that this is a um, this that the first thirty three days of this segment of time is a time of mourning, a time of sadness. Because during that time, there was a school in old Israel that was from a Rabbi Akiva, who, during this time, there was a plague, a pandemic, and that all the students were getting sick and they were dying because they were not acting correctly with each other. All right? Now, you can go two ways with this, right? All right, you can go that they were that everyone was being punished because they weren't following the orders of the rabbi, which of course that's what the rabbis say, and they want they're using the stick instead of the carrot, right? But you can also interpret in saying, what would this be if if indeed this was happening in the school? Maybe the students weren't social distancing. Maybe they weren't taking precautions. Maybe they maybe they were doing in the same way today in the pandemic, right? But they've chosen, and they teach this in religious schools, in Jewish day schools, not only the Orthodox schools, but in other schools. And they teach it, they don't, and they don't think about the consequences of that if a student really takes it to heart and is really listening that this is the message that they're getting. This is the message that they're getting. All right? So what I have to do is that there's going to be a segment of the religious, about religious leadership that's going to go, well, this is the way it's right, and we're going to do this and that. But there is also, and I've found it a lot at Beth Rifka, where my kids go, because I have the most dialogue with them, that they, they go, it never even occurred to us. Because we were teaching it out of habit, and it never occurred to us that to think it through to the ramifications about how, you know, perhaps if we teach a bunch of girls that are in year six and year seven that someone, someone was evil, and the way you can tell they were evil is that their face broke out in pox, how that might have a self-image thing for girls that are starting to go through their menstrual cycle, 
I'm a guy, but I'm not that thick. And, you know, so to shine a light and say, listen, let's take a good look at this, at this text and let's see what the ramifications within the community are for people that need other people to have an open mind. This is exactly what I was looking for, Tal. I love your stories, the way that you tell them. They're just, they're just riveting. One of the things that I have found, um, so I grew up with no religion. We've talked about this a little bit and, and it, it, you've been very generous actually a couple of times when I've, I don't know, recognised that having you know no religion is actually a problem for me to cope with certain things. I recently got baptized at my child, my children's school church, actually, because I decided to take that step and to, you know, start to get involved um, with this lovely church, which is very progressive, but also very, um, just, it's very loving. It's, it, it comes from a very optimistic, positive, loving perspective. And, and it's very diverse. The local um, priest is gay and the main, um, one of the leaders is, is a woman. So it's very, it's very progressive um, and it's convenient because it's near my, it's my kid's school. Um, so I've sort of taken that on a little bit to start to learn myself about which, what elements of um, organised religion can be helpful. But one of the things, so because we, my husband and I both grew up with very minimal religion, it never occurred to us to consider religious schools for our children. And obviously the most natural one for us, given our background, is that the Catholic system could have been a possibility, but we never considered it. And over time, the more that I um, learn about how the systems work, the more information I get about how the Catholic system is actually much more willing and flexible to work with individuals' needs and to sort of be more, uh, um, to teach more about care for others and inclusion. And um, I I find that really interesting and I wanted to sort of ask your view on to what extent do you think that religion in this current day, which I know, I mean, the spectrum of people and their views on religion is very broad, obviously, and there's quite a sort of negative, for very unfortunate things that have been happening, very negative response to all religion in some ways, which I think is a problem in our community. Uh, and I've sort of myself recognised that and decided to do something about it. But when it became clear to me that the Catholic system may actually have been more suitable for my children, what is it about religion in education that overlays this kind of sense of inclusion and care and, and, and care for the individual more than the secular system? Uh, just a couple of things. One, uh, listen, if, if someone, and I'm not speaking specifically about your, your situation, but if someone is, uh, I, I think that everyone should, should have a lot of uh, religious education, uh, whether, whether you're a believer or not, or whether you're a follower or not, uh, for two reasons. One it, on some level, it informs how society is, whether it is consciously or unconsciously. Uh, I mean, you've got the whole advent of individualism and like singularity in, in terms of I could be doing well and it's not a requirement for my neighbor to be doing well. Uh, that sort of thinking is really informed by Christianity uh, brought into the world individual salvation. I mean, I mean, Judaism has no has no concept for individual redemption. It's you know, it's it's a big. If you're going to use Buddhism, it's a big boat Buddhism type of thing. We all are going to do, or none of us are, right? Um, there's so so. It really 
it really, really informs. Um, you've got uh, you've got certain elements of uh, the Protestant angle of uh, Christianity, which uh, believes in predestination on a theological basis, even if not cognitively, people aren't going to, and and that there's people, the elect, the elect have already been chosen by God to ascend to heaven and the other people. But how do you know you're a member of the, of the elect? You know because God smiles upon you in material ways in life. What does that mean? That means that it makes being poor akin to being evil. So that there's a real overtone of that. It's like, so if someone, that's where you get like, well, they're only poor because they're lazy or they're only poor, right? There's no, like, there's no, you know, yes, you get the, you could get some people say, but for the grace of God, that would be me. And that's a more compassionate type of thing. But the funny part about it is that, that you alluded to there's a dichotomy where you have science on one side and you have a religion on the other side. And that there's, you know, that, that, you know, like modern, there's a, segment of modern modern society that's very secular that has a very negative thing about religion and there's a religious segment that has a very the, the point is is that in effect and in reality if you really look at the strip it away and you look at primary sources there's no conflict that that science has always been the pursuit of how something works and religion has always been the pursuit of why something works the way that it does. And that it's a real complementary thing. And the people who, in, on science, that are attacking religion and the people who are in the religious that are denying science are people who have their own agendas that feel that you cannot be to mix metaphors, be in the pulpit of both sides of it, right? So they're at war. And because of that, a lot of people get caught in the crossfire and are unable to really uh, reap the benefits of, of all the resources they need to do. And they become closed-minded and they close on the religious sense. What they do is they close, they closeted their kids because they feel the kids are going to be uh, dogmatically persecuted because something's gone wrong. On the science side, and I'm not sure this is any better, the science side looks at these kids and sees them as as things almost that they that they rip the profound neshama the soul from them and they say how can we on one level how can we fix the kids and they ignore that the kids were born and created in the image of God and that they have a a right to explore their spirituality and their religious heritage and and that there's something inside of them that transcends science doesn't validate science but it transcends science when i teach at special developmental schools and i do you know we do a, basically we do it to feel up for a half hour we do a musical prayer session that's all in Hebrew. And the kids, are, they, there's something that transcends them that's very ancient that comes out when they do this. That, that there's a commonality that their neshama, their soul, 
is something that they have in common with other souls. And it strips away that electrical condition that separates them from the neurotypical population. I absolutely agree. I've been um, doing more and more yoga in my recent times and that sort of concept of shared experience, even having a sort of, for me, yoga is quite spiritual, a spiritual um, experience with others is quite a different thing to having it on your own. I think there's many, even singing in a choir or there's many sort of simple things that we, you know, can't really explain with science around this this connectivity. I actually wasn't talking about science. I was talking about the unfortunate things that some of the clergy have done over recent times, which have put people significantly off religion, um, you know, and I, obviously I don't defend that behaviour in any way, but my view is that humans did the bad things, not the religion. I mean, I know in some cases the structure of the religion probably didn't help. But Tal, this is exactly what I was hoping it would be. I don't want it to end. We have to unfortunately wrap up because um, we've already taken more time of yours that we asked for, but it's so wonderful to have you on. And quite a few of our guests have agreed, and I promise it hasn't been by any form of pressure to come back at another point and continue the conversation with us. And so if you, if that's something you'd be interested in, we'd just love to have you back. And there's one thing I want to explain to listeners. We've had to um, make this work from a technology perspective. Um, so what you didn't hear was me laughing at all of Tal's jokes because I was hysterically laughing, but I was on mute. Um, I think it's really important. I feel like it must be kind of weird for a listener to some, hear someone say a joke and then not hear any response to it. But um, there's been a lot of laughing on mute. So I want to thank you, Dilly, and I'm sure Jordan would like to thank you as well, but I wish you all the best and I really look forward to connecting again with you shortly. Yeah, Tal, it's been an unbelievable, unbelievable you know, session. Uh, it's always great to chat with you and your unique insight into so many things You know, is something that I think anyone listening will find incredibly inspiring. Um, but for me personally, you know, it's something that is unbelievably in- inspiring and motivating. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that you've been able to, we've been able to find each other, you know, in, in our lives and, and you sit in such a unique place, you know, in my life as, as a friend. Um, and then, but also as someone who's a mentor in my disability language and inclusion skill set, uh, a mentor in my own Jewish exploration of, of identity and uh, learnings and just as, as a better person. Um, so I really do appreciate, you know, our relationship and that's why this has been um, such a great time to talk because I, it's been an insight and a window for other people uh, to finally be able to, you know, gain a little bit of insight uh, into what I've been so uh, privileged and lucky to have been exploring over the past few years. So thank you so much for that. Uh, you really are an, an amazing person with so much to give to the world and have given to the world, which is you know, truly a blessing. So thank you so much. Um, and we definitely would love to continue the conversation as I'm sure you know, anyone who's listened to this has definitely gained uh, a very unique insight that they'll take forward you know, for, for a long time. Uh, th- thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you, you two are, are extraordinarily generous and extraordinarily open. And, you know, one thing that, um, you know, there's a saying that I think I mentioned to Jordan before is that, and this is a message to anyone who's, who's watching this, you know, that there's an old rabbinic saying that, um, that you shouldn't walk the streets alone after midnight because there are demons that are out there, um, that will devour you. 
and as gruesome and as 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 much as that echoes something that you might see at Buffy, you know, during Buffy the uh, Vampire Slayer, which I love, um, that uh, I, you know, Spike is just so fun. Anyway, uh, um, that what it really means is is you know, there's a lot of stress out there. There's a lot of stuff going on, and don't live inside your own head only. Trust your own gut, trust your own feelings, but but reach out and try to find a community. Of, it doesn't have to be a large community, but even if it's one or two people that you trust that will listen to you and that will that will help you. Uh, there's you know even with the pandemic, with being isolated like this, thank God we do have the te- we have the technology that we can reach out and that we don't have to um, we shoulder the weight of all this on our own. And I would love, I would absolutely love to come back. It's always my fear that I have forgotten to say something and that I've just touched the surface. So I would very much welcome the opportunity. Well, you can take that as an invitation. Thank you so much. We're so grateful. Stay well. Um, and we're sending you love virtually and um, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thank you, Tal Spinrad. Thank you so much, Tal. 